This sermon, Almost, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, September 18th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning, church. If you are busy with us, my name is Derek. It's a privilege of being one of the pastors here. We are grateful that you are here as well. This morning, we continue our study in the book of Acts. We're actually going to take a break next week, and for the few weeks after that, I'll mention that. That'll come up somehow in the sermon. Um, but this morning, we're looking at Acts 19. So would you open your Bibles to Acts 19? We're going to limit ourselves to the first seven verses. If you're wondering where are we in the book of Acts and God's plan and redemptive history through Paul, we're in the third church planting mission for Paul. Uh, this is his third go around. Um, and this morning we find ourselves in Ephesus, which was an amazing city that became an amazing city, an amazing church, uh, as not only Acts unfolds, but even as Paul's epistles unfold. So, so would you stand with me? Acts 19, let's read together the first seven verses, the story of God building his church continues. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you that you are here. Your presence is with us. We, we are your people Therefore, your presence is with us. That, that has always been a mark of your people, and we are so grateful that this morning we do not go this alone. Lord, we have sung your praises in your presence. We will look at your word and learn from your word in your presence, and we ask that, that we would be mindful of your presence this morning. Lord, I pray for every heart here that doesn't feel like being here, that's weary from the week uh, that's just gone by, that is distracted by the week to come. Lord, no one here is a super Christian and we need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit. Fill me freshly that I might preach your word. You know my weaknesses. You know my inadequacies. Father, I pray that you would 
overcome those and that your word would go out in power and conviction and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll listen to, uh, listen to this report that came out this last week. I typically don't pay too much attention to these, but this one did catch my eye. It's a new report by Pew Research Center and the General Social Survey that was published Tuesday, and it found a surge of adults leaving Christianity to become atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. It predicted that if the number of Christians under 30 abandoning their faith accelerates beyond the current pace, adherents of the historically dominant religion of the United States of America could become a minority by 2045. One could draw numerous conclusions from that research. Here's mine. The visible church is filled with people who look and sound like Christians, but they aren't. They know some things about the Bible. They've been baptized. They call themselves disciples, and their friends call them disciples, but they are missing the key ingredient to Christianity. That is Christ and his spirit. Sadly, we probably all know someone like this, someone that perhaps would be a statistic in this research, someone who would fit this description that they look and sound, they talk and act like a Christian, but they aren't. It's, it's a regretful but all too common reality. And it's really difficult, if you do know someone like this, it's really difficult to question the genuineness of their faith. But if someone's faith needs to be questioned, we must humbly and graciously and carefully question it for one reason. Eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. And I share this because this is what's happening in our text today. Acts 19 begins with the Apostle Paul back in Ephesus. You'll notice that Luke says Paul has moved, or Apollos has, in verse 1, Apollos has moved on to Corinth to continue the gospel ministry that, that Paul started. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul says, I planted, he's writing, he's talking about the, the church in Corinth. I planted, Apollos watered. Well, Paulos right now in Acts 19, he's in Corinth watering. That's what he's doing if you want to put your epistles and acts together. Apollos has moved on to Corinth to continue the gospel ministry. Paul comes on his heels to Ephesus where, and for the next three years, by the way, his longest time anywhere, he will be building the church in the gospel 
at Ephesus. And while there, Luke says in verse 1, notice what it says, he met a small group of disciples. Luke in verse 7 says it was probably about 12 men. So he runs into this group of disciples. Now, you'll notice that Luke does call them disciples, right? And I think it's important to remember that when we read our Bible, remember that, that Luke is writing from Paul's perspective. So when he describes these this small group of men as disciples, he's not necessarily claiming that they are disciples of Jesus. He is describing them as Paul would have seen them. As Paul engaged with these men, it's clear that they gave him some impression, they gave him the impression that that they were fellow Christians. Why? Well, Luke doesn't tell us, but we don't need to think about it too hard. They probably looked like believers. They probably talked like believers. As Paul engaged with these men, he probably thought, wow, these guys are Christians. They looked like believers. They talked like believers. Paul assumed they must be believers. But at some point, these men must have either said something or did something that cast doubt in Paul's mind about their spiritual condition. So Paul does what today would be politically incorrect. He asks them about their faith. Notice verse 2. He says, And he, that is Paul, said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We, we have not even heard of the, that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, He didn't drop it. He said, oh, Okay. Well, then into what were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That question, that single question has made this passage that we are looking at this morning a foundational passage for our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters. Like us, they love the Lord. Like us, they are seeking to live for his glory, by his grace. I am grateful for our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters, but they get this text wrong. And if that's you this morning, uh, I hope that you will have a different understanding of this text by the time we're done. I know that I was, I grew up in the Pentecostal charismatic church. And so I understand where they come from with this text, but essentially, uh, there is a a system of belief out there that says this text, this encounter, because Paul looked, was had the impression that these people were believers, that that somehow what's happening in this text is a second theological experience. The interpretation that these men were believers based on the phrase, when you believed, in verse 2, has given way to what is commonly known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard of that. It's what I grew up being taught, and it's perhaps what you grew up in being taught. But in a nutshell, 
A sinner is saved by grace, but there is something missing. They need to not only be baptized in water, but they need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, just as we saw Paul do later on in this encounter. And and when that happens, there is this new filling of the Holy Spirit that empowers that person in a greater way for the Christian life. And typically, it's accompanied by tongues. Typically, it's accompanied by a miraculous gift. And this person becomes at a different level in their ability to follow and obey and labor for Christ. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was younger, according to my parents. So what I want to do is I want to look at this and give three reasons from the text why we should not believe that these three men were believers, that actually they were almost Christian. Not quite, but almost. If there is ever a thing as an almost Christian, and I borrow that phrase, I can't remember where I read it, almost Christian, I thought, yeah, that sums it up. I'm going to use that. Whoever came up with that, thank you. Almost Christian, if there was such thing, it would be these these men. So so here are three reasons. By the way, this is a pointless sermon without being pointless, if you know what I mean. For those of you who love big points, I'm going to give you three reasons why we should believe that these men were not believers and then a little bit of application. And hopefully that won't be pointless. But here are three reasons why I believe we should understand these men not as believers and therefore this text does not does not teach that there's a second theological experience, a second blessing, if you will, that comes through the through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First of all, notice in verse 3, these men told Paul what kind of disciples they were. He, he asked them, notice verse 3, and he said, uh, he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now that, that, that answer is just another way to say we are disciples of John. We follow John's teaching. Now we all love John the Baptist. He was the one who came. He was the, he was the heralder. He was the big flashing neon arrow in the desert. He's the one that baptized Jesus. We all love John, but John wasn't Jesus. And if you are a disciple of John, well, you might as well be a disciple of Tim. It's not going to get you very far. (laughs) So the man told Paul what kind of disciples they were. Second, these men were honest. I just, I love their, they said, we, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Notice verse 2. We're getting a little bit out of order, but notice verse 2. Paul says, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He's a bunch of humble guys. They don't care what Paul thinks about them. They're just going to be honest. 
Now, it can't be, right? It can't be that these men literally had never heard of the Holy Spirit for two obvious reasons. Uh, First, as disciples of John, they would have known the Old Testament. And clearly, if you get into the Old Testament, you understand there is a Holy Spirit, the second person of the Godhead. And if they were disciples of John, well, John's teaching, his doctrine included the Holy Spirit. His message, in a sense, rested on the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember what he said in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water, but he, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That, that, That was at the center of John's Message. If you are a disciple of John, you know those words. You, you have heard them and you have repeated them often. You are waiting for that to happen. You know that, that there, are, there are at least 10, and you might be able to find more, but there are at least 10 New Testament passages that teach no one can become a true Christian a true disciple of Jesus without receiving the Holy Spirit, let alone not even knowing that he exists. Let me just give you one of them in Romans 8, 9. It may be the clearest. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So these men told Paul, we're we're disciples of John. When he asked about the Holy Spirit, he said, "We, we didn't even know the Holy Spirit existed. At least not the Pentecost Holy Spirit. Now by that, don't, there's not two Holy Spirits, but you know what I mean. That They had no idea. That the prophecy of Joel had been fulfilled at Pentecost. And then third is what happens next, and this is where we should rest all of our theological weight, is what happens next. Notice verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. He affirms John's teaching. He finds common ground. But then he says this, and there should be emphasis when we read this, that is Jesus. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. Jesus. But Paul's concern, or the concern of Paul's question regarding their baptism in verse 3 really is a concern of the object of their faith. He told them what they already knew. We need to repent. There's one coming. But all of that, all of that points to and is centered on this one, Jesus. So he reminds them how John's message pointed them forward, but then he says, but it's all about Jesus. It's not about John. It's not even about your repentance It's about Jesus. That is Jesus. 
So what we see here is that Jesus was the part they were missing. These men were, if you will, stuck between the old and the new. I love a a story that I read this week. It says, during the latter part of the 18th century, many colonists left Virginia and started through the mountains to settle the valleys that lay far to the west. Fear of Indians, the death of a horse, or the breaking down of a wagon forced many to stay in the mountains. For over 20 years, these settlers saw no white men at all until a group of travelers straggled into the neighborhood. Naturally, there was much conversation about the outside world. The travelers asked the mountaineers what they thought of the new republic and the policies of the Continental Congress. And the others answered, we have not so much as heard of a Continental Congress or republic. They thought of themselves as loyal subjects of the British king and had not even heard of George Washington or the Revolutionary War. I believe there's a Civil War site just up the freeway, about 30 miles, Picacho Peak. And I may be wrong, so correct me if I am, but my understanding is that was the last Civil War skirmish fought. I also understand that when it was fought, the Civil War had actually already ended. But back then, it took a long time for news to travel. Like the Virginians, these men were 20 years behind the times. They'd been baptized by John. They believed people needed to repent of their sin. They were waiting and hoping for the promised Messiah to come. They knew stuff. They knew God stuff. They knew good stuff. They knew religious stuff. They weren't completely ignorant. They could talk the talk, at least for a bit. They had Paul thinking they were fellow believers. Remember when you first came to church? You hear people talking. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm growing in my sanctification. You're like, sanctification? What what is that? (laughs) Yeah, I'm just so grateful I've been justified by the grace. Just, what does that mean? Right? You, You met people who could, man, they knew stuff. They could talk and say things, and you're like, wow, I don't even know what that is. And then, of course, you spend some time in the church, good preaching, good teaching, good fellowship in small groups, good Bible studies, whatever it may be. And pretty soon you're like, yeah, I'm so grateful I'm justified by the glo- for the glory of God. And yeah, he's going to see my sanctification through to the end. And, and the new person is going, what are you talking about? You know some stuff. These people knew some stuff. But they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the true meaning of the gospel. They didn't know Jesus was the promised Messiah who had come. They didn't know Jesus had died for their sins on a cross. They didn't know that he rose triumphantly from the grave. 
that he was seen by over 500 people, and that he ascended before the eyes of the disciples. They didn't know the promised spirit had come at Pentecost, fulfilling the Old Testament prophet, I will pour my spirit out on men and women, your sons and daughters will prophesy. They didn't know. They knew stuff. They knew good stuff. They knew religious stuff. They didn't know Jesus. To borrow a phrase, they were almost Christians. But notice, there is good news in our text because these almost Christians became bona fide believers. Paul tells these men that Jesus had come and all he had already done and they got saved. Yes, the gospel was powerful enough to overcome their confusion and their ignorance. They believed and they were baptized. Notice verse five. On hearing this, well, back up to verse four. And Paul said, John, the Bap- John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him. That is Jesus. Now, I promise you, I promise you that, that Paul just didn't say, Jesus. <laughs> I think he explained. You know, the one you've been looking for, the one you've been waiting for, he's come. You need to understand it's not about John. It's about Jesus. And let me tell you what Jesus has done. And then in verse 5, it says, on hearing this, that is, on hearing the gospel, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not in the name of John, but in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the book of Acts, you probably know this by now, but in the book of Acts, the demonstration of people coming into a saving knowledge of Jesus was not coming down front. It wasn't raising your hand. Nothing wrong with that if it's a genuine expression of faith in Christ. But the, the demonstration that one had believed in Jesus was baptism. One who put their faith in Jesus was baptized. That was the public demonstration. And that's not to say that baptism saved them. It is to say, though, that public baptism quickly followed personal conversion. Tom and I were talking about this week. It wasn't a mass text. Hey, Joe got saved. Hey, I got saved. It wasn't a Facebook post. I'm sorry. It wasn't a meta post. Whatever we call that now. It, you got baptized. Baptism followed believing. They believed, so they were baptized. And so we see here, because now with the object of their faith, not John's teaching. 
not repentance, not a promise, but Jesus, they're baptized in his name because they have believed. I just, I, if I could just say, I, I think that, I think it's easy, I think for good reasons. We, we want to be careful with giving false assurance, particularly with our children, particularly our young children. But it's easy to overcorrect. And when we look at Scripture, when we look at the book of Acts, when we look at the epistles, uh, you really don't see a pattern. Okay, well, let's wait six months. You're a believer. Now, show us, and then we'll dunk you. No, what you see is people believed, and they were baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, there's some water. What keeps me from getting baptized? Peter. What, why wouldn't we baptize these guys? They've made a, made a profession of faith. Now listen, don't take me wrong. I think we need to be careful with our young kids. And I think there can be wisdom at times. But this idea that, we, that somebody has to wait six months or 12 months to prove out their faith really isn't a biblical idea. It's an overcorrection to a good concern. But these men, who were disciples of John. They heard the gospel preached, they believed, and they were baptized. And that's how we know they became Christians. Paul, an apostle, baptized them. And then notice what happens next. Luke says, they were filled with the Spirit. Verse 6, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Can I just say, if you didn't speak in tongues and prophesy when you first believed in Jesus, don't panic. Don't doubt your faith. That's not the norm. Acts 19 is not formulaic. However, in the book of Acts, beginning with Pentecost, there are significant and unique moments in the gospel mission, like this one, where tongues or prophecy accompany a spirit-filled conversion. Remember, when the, when the gospel went to the Samaritans in Acts 8, that was a momentous moment. That was a, 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 one, a, a, a clear fulfillment of Acts 1-8, that the gospel will go where? To Samaria. Then in Acts 10, when the gospel went to Cornelius and the what? Gentiles, a momentous moment in the advancement of the gospel. And now this group of men, and this group of men represents something. This group of men re represent another transition, another significant moment. Derek Thomas says, Ephesus marks that he's talking about our text here, this situation. Ephesus marks the transition from the world of the old covenant and John's baptism to the world of the new covenant and the Spirit's baptism that comes from Christ. 
These men looked forward with great hope and faith to the coming Messiah. But their hearts hadn't been opened to it yet. Their hearts now have been opened to receive Jesus as the fulfillment of all that they had heard. How many people must have been in this category in the mid-50s A.D., which is about when this happened? So the tongues and the prophecy both demonstrate the genuineness of their faith and mark them as bona fide believers of God's church. We've talked about this already, so I'm not going to belabor this, but remember their world. (laughs) The church was very much a Jewish church. And now the gospel is going to everyone everywhere. It doesn't matter your tradition. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter the ethnicity. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. (laughs) So if you were Jewish, whoa, who, who are these guys? These are Samaritans. These are Gentiles. But we, we got an issue with holiness. This has always been about us. Who let these folk in? They got tattoos. Are they supposed to be in here? They smell like cigarette smoke. Should we let them in here? They don't dress the way we do, and their kids don't talk the way our kids do. Should we let them in here? You better believe it. If Jesus has decided to enter into their heart, and even if he hasn't, because he may bring them in here to do just that, to remember their world. And so these moments not only mark the next marker in God's redemptive plan, according to the promise in Acts 1.8, but it was exploding the paradigms, and it was an act of mercy. It was an act of kindness by the Lord, because he was showing forth these foreigners that, no, they belong to me. My spirit is in them. And these almost Christians become true spirit-filled believers. It's a great story. It's a confusing story, and I believe plenty of people get it wrong. But I believe that's the story. They didn't need a second experience. There is no, oh, you haven't been baptized, then you're not here. No, Ephesians 1 is clear. The moment you believe, the Spirit enters your heart and seals you. You don't need a second experience. This text doesn't teach us that. But as significant as this story is in redemptive history, its its significance reaches into our lives today. There's something for us here today. And I want to go there with two application questions. First, even in a room this small, I'm not going to assume that everybody here 
is a Christian. And I'm not going to assume that everyone who isn't a Christian knows they're not a Christian. I don't mean to be George Whitfield doubting everybody's salvation. But here's the question. For the, here's the first question. Are you an almost Christian? Or maybe we could ask it this way. What is the object of your faith this morning? What is the object of your faith? You look the part. You can talk the part. But are you missing the main ingredient? Jesus. You, you know stuff. You, you know Bible stuff. You know religious stuff. You know good stuff. But you don't know the Savior. Whatever faith you have, its object isn't Jesus. Jesus warns of this, warns us of this, doesn't he? Math, go, go to Matthew 7 this, this, uh, this week. Matthew 7, 21. You know what, you know what it says? That's, that's when Jesus says, on that day there will be many that say, Lord, Lord. And I will say, I don't know you. And they will say, you don't know us, but we prophesied in your name. We did signs and wonders in your name by your power. What do you mean you don't know us? I don't know you. The scariest words in the Bible, perhaps. Jesus warned us about almost Christians, didn't he? Those people knew stuff. They did serious stuff. They looked the part, but they didn't know Jesus. They were almost Christians. And I think the church is filled with almost Christians. I hope not ours, but I think there's a lot of almost Christians. In fact, I want to have Chris Johnson come up for a moment. I've asked him to give his testimony, because if you haven't heard it, he was an almost Christian. And so grateful that he's not anymore, so... Chris. Everybody, um, it's two pages, but really it's because it's big print. Um, yeah, I got to use this. Sorry. Only got ten minutes. Yeah, ten minutes. Sorry. Um, but first, just a preface: uh, what I'm about to share is a, a bookend, bookended view, right? So the first bookend is the church I started in. The last bookend is this church, and there's churches in between that God was pulling me along. And just in his sovereign will, getting me to hear, to hear, okay? Um, and it's a very general description. I'm not going to go into the deep stuff because, one, I'll cry like crazy and I can't get through it all, right? Um, and so, so there's going to be words here that actually will express a deeper pain, suffering, sorrow, guilt, shame, right? But that's only to illustrate, I say that only to illustrate God's grace and as much as the bad was here, his grace just covered it all, right? So that's where I'll start. Okay. So uh, just remember, this is 32 years, right? From 13 to 45, right? My age. Um, I'm older than that, actually. Um, <laughs> shush. Um, my testimony is not unlike many others, but it is still my testimony. And I say that because we should never think less of our testimony because God is the author of it. I grew up in a single-parent home uh, with a twin brother. 
And my dad faithfully attended the Presbyterian church since he was a child and passed the importance of church attendance on to me. Now, when I say Presbyterian church, remember, there's a church split in the Presbyterian church, right? Um, I was, our church was the one that went way left, all right? Everything was love, and that's it, pretty much, okay? Um, don't offend anybody, things like that. Um, now, since I went to church every week, I learned about the books of the Bible. I learned the Ten Commandments. I learned the Great Commission. I recited the Apostles' Creed so I could be confirmed. Um, every Sunday, I received more knowledge about, uh, um, but it was just knowledge that made me feel comfortable. Like, hey, I know more stuff. I get a badge, things like that. Um, my faith was in works. Um, I served and sacrificed, but more or less for my ego um, and to make my dad happy. Um, the sermons I sat under were illustrations um, on how to live a good life, uh, and the focus um, was learning about the Bible in a way that uh, wouldn't threaten anyone. Um, uh, we didn't challenge people, things like that. I learned to have faith in God's love apart from judgment. I only learned of just God loves you, you're good, go. Um, forgiveness I learned growing up was because God loved me, which sounds great, but I was never truly presented with the atoning blood of Christ. That was missing. Um, uh, and that message was only delivered on Easter, um, where at my childhood church, people were more concerned about the bell choir, how they're going to sound, or how the Easter cantata was going to be a hit this year or not. Um, and I was part of the cantata, so we always worry about that instead. But, but now growing up in that spiritual depravity produced a really messed up Chris. Um, I had a strong faith in what I knew about loving your neighbor as you would love yourself. So I would just love my neighbor, but not enough to challenge my neighbor. I mean, I knew things, but I never challenged myself either. Um, let's see. But I didn't, I didn't love myself. Like, when I say myself, I'm not saying self-love. I'm just saying, if, if I didn't care about me, why would I care about you, right? Um, I cared about my flesh, of course. Um, but I had a faith in a pretend faith that built around God's love and not his judgment. Uh, and I needed help. On the outside, I was the happy-go-lucky Chris. I was, you know, such a nice kid, Chris, the moral, the model son, Chris, the perfect Chris. That's what my dad would call me. Um, but I was racking myself over the coals on the inside. I was riddled with guilt and shame from unconfessed sin, piled upon unconfessed sin. Um, and, I, and I didn't sit under teaching that showed the gospel um, all over Scripture. Um, but as I was moving from the Presbyterian church onto a Bible church, and a Baptist church to a Bible church to here, I'm starting to see the gospel everywhere, every single sermon, just the gospel. Every single verse has something of the gospel there. So here at Sovereign Grace, I was hearing that every Sunday, every Wednesday, and it was tugging at me, telling me to act and moving me to act. Um, here I heard that the wrath of God is real because God is perfect in judgment. He's perfect in love. He's got to be perfect in judgment, so you have to understand that. And I heard about how God's love is expressed through the atoning blood of Christ. So um, that brought me um, from unconfessed sin to confessed sin. That brought me to true repentance, and that brought me to a saving faith where I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and that his blood washes me daily, not just, I mean, daily. Um, uh, before my faith was a faith in God's love apart from his judgment, and today my faith is in God's love expressed through the blood of Jesus. Um, Today, my faith is in Jesus. I can say that. It's not a faith in myself to believe in myself. Um, and today, I'm four years into eternity. So, thank you. Chris, I love his testimony. Um, so, how many years 
did you live as an almost Christian? Well, 32. I was 32 a years. A model almost Christian. Yeah. We're so grateful that the Lord brought you here. Amen. Amen. And through whatever means he used, he gave you a genuine faith. Yeah. So that you are a true spirit-filled believer today. Mm-hmm. Amen. We're grateful for you. Listen, if that, if that rings with you, if you're going, maybe I am an almost Christian, no matter how old you are, no matter if you grew up in this church, no matter if you just started coming, no matter if you're like Chris and you were in and out of churches for years, um, I want to invite you to a bridge course, which you're going to hear more about it. If, it, if that confuses you right now, you're like, what? Uh, it, it is an introductory class to who is Jesus and why do I need him? Tim will be leading us. It's part of our evangelistic uh, uh, efforts in this new year. And I want to encourage you to rush to Tim after the service. (laughs) Say, tell me about the bridge course because I think that's for me. If you're feeling like an almost Christian, that bridge course is exactly where you should be the next few months. And if you're wondering, let me tell you, here's a characteristic of an almost Christian, and you heard it in Chris's testimony. You always feel like you're trying to be a good Christian. But no matter how hard you try, you always feel like an outsider. And it's because you are. You don't know Jesus, and his spirit isn't living in you. And, And that's nothing to be ashamed of. We were all there. But there's hope. The good news is, like Paul told these men, there is a man named Jesus who died for your sins, who lived for your righteousness, who was raised for the power of the gospel to justify you. And you don't have to jump through hoops. You simply acknowledge before the Lord above, I need a savior. Would you save me by your mercy? Now, before we go to the second category, I think it's important to acknowledge something. It's true that at times a true Christian can feel like an almost Christian. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't want to confuse those two. A true believer, a true Christian can have seasons where they feel like an almost Christian. In the words of John Piper, sanctification isn't like this. Being, being, being made into the image of likeness of Christ more and more isn't like this. It's like this. It's up. It's down. We have seasons where I, I have seasons where I go, Lord, am I even saved? <laughs> Tim has seasons where he goes, Lord, is Tom even saved? <laughs> we all do. By the way, if that's you, if you're struggling, John Piper wrote a great book called When I Don't Desire God. I encourage you to to read it. But doubt can spring. Doubt can spring from fears and competing desires and Satan's voice of condemnation that can erode away our sense of assurance. Am I even a Christian? Well, 
what happens is instead of moving towards Christ at those times, we move away from Christ in those times. And guess what? The farther I move away from Christ in those seasons, the more I feel like an almost Christian. And so it's key that we move toward Christ. Burke Parsons, by the way, before you go do something, if this is you, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You have genuine faith in him, but you're struggling right now. Take heed to the words of Burke Parsons. Our Father is the source of our assurance. Christ is the ground of our assurance, and the Spirit is the sustainer of our assurance. And our assurance is not established on the strength of our faith, but on the object of our faith. Jesus Christ. So whether you are an almost Christian or a struggling Christian that feels like an almost Christian, the question is the same. Friend, where, who is the object of your faith right now? Let us all answer that. Finally, are you an almost witness? Or we could say, what is the subject of your witness? Paul had doubts about these men. He had doubts about their faith being rooted in Christ. He, he, he thought they were disciples, but as he listened, as he engaged with them, something struck him to cause him to go, something's not right. And he didn't beat around the bush. He didn't get clever. He, he wasn't worried about offending them. He asked them about their faith. He in essence, all this conversation is, who do you, who do you believe in, by the way? <laughs> Does your witness get to Jesus? Particularly those people that, you know, we don't live in the Bible Belt. But you've heard this about the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt is not trying to tell people about Jesus. It's trying to convince people, no, you're not a Christian. Trust me. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're a Christian. Does your witness get to Jesus? Is it centered on the gospel? Because if it never quite gets around to Jesus, sin and repentance and the wrath of God that, 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 that was satisfied in the work of Christ, then your witness is an almost witness. If you never quite get around to Jesus, you're almost evangelizing. If you never quite get around to Jesus, your almost evangelism may be leading people to become almost Christians. So let us ask this. What is the subject of my witness? Do I get to Jesus? Or am I satisfied with, oh, you go to church, great. Yeah, good. Oh, wow, you, you know the Bible. I am excited about the next, what the Lord has for us in this season as a church. Beginning with this week, I, I want to throw my weight as well, whatever it's worth, behind Tim's invitation this weekend. Throw yourself into the times that we are uh, spending with Jim Donahue this weekend. Is it Phil Donahue or is it? Jim, Jim, Jim. okay. Jim Donahue. The Lord, I believe, the Lord is doing something. He wants to do something. 
And you might be a great evangelist, but your presence this weekend can only stir you up even more, can only cause revival in your heart, a greater love for the lost. And so the Lord, the Lord wants to work on our witness. Would you please give yourself to that which he has this weekend? Listen, I'm almost done preaching, okay? But I can't stop until I remind you of this and let these be my final words. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't almost accomplish salvation? See, this message means nothing if Jesus didn't fully accomplish salvation. If he went to the cross and when it got really tough, struck down the soldiers and called down the hosts of angels and said, get me off of this thing. This is not my burden to bear. These are not my sins to pay for. This is not my debt to pay. This is not the judgment that I should be receiving. It's yours, so I'm done. No, he didn't almost. He did every ounce of work that needed to be done for the salvation of sinners like you and I. And there's nothing left for you to do. He didn't almost get you to salvation. And he doesn't almost get you to heaven. He will see you through as we have already heard this morning. So aren't you glad that Jesus isn't the Savior of an almost work, but a full work indeed?